And let us go to our God in prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, again we come before you, before the throne of grace, where in heaven there is a multitude worshiping you. And we thank you that we can come to your throne of grace through the mediation of our great high priest, Jesus Christ, who pleads his life as our substitute, his death in our place, and being resurrected from the dead, declared that it is that all of his elect are redeemed by his blood. And he pleads that blood and that life for us to cleanse us and wash us from all of our sins. And yet we still know, Lord, that we have a sinful nature that we have to struggle with every day. And we do fall into sin and stumble into it. But keep us from deceiving ourselves into thinking that we can practice sins and think that we're okay, that you're okay with that. Forgive us for such presumption. Convict us of the sins which we we treasure or delight in still as believers in Christ. Deliver us from those sins and those practices, those evil practices, and sanctify us by your Holy Spirit, enabling us to mortify, to put to death our flesh, and to turn away always from sin, and to hate sin as you hate it. Make us hate it as you hate it, because you are holy. So wash us afresh that our consciences may be clean, cleansed before you, and that we can rest in that finished work of Christ and then come before your throne of grace boldly and yet in deep respect for who you are and all that you've done. So we thank you that we can come to your throne of grace now to worship you and praise and honor you for who you are and all that you've done in creation and redemption and the continued sanctification of your people until the return of Jesus Christ, which we pray, come quickly, Lord, come quickly. We do pray for Christ's Reformed Church. We thank you for your many blessings upon her over the years. We thank you for the pastors that you've provided for us and continue to pray that you would provide for a pastor in the very near future. And if that be Reverend Malin, we pray that everything will come together and that he'll be able to move here perhaps in the fall and uh, take this place as under-shepherd, as pastor of Christ Reformed Church. And we commit that all into your hands. And we do also pray for all of those churches in the RCUS who also have vacant pulpits, that you would provide for them um, a man to be the pastor there, uh, raising up uh, from within the RCUS or from without. And uh, we do thank you again that your blessings have been upon the RCUS. Though it be small, uh, you have kept it faithful to the truth. We pray for all your people this day who gather together to worship you, that you would have mercy upon them wherever they may be, especially those who are persecuted for the faith and have to meet in secret places uh, for fear of government persecution. We pray that you would be with them in a special way to strengthen them and help them as well. So we do pray for our congregation, those in our congregation who have been struggling with various things. We do also pray for our upcoming Mission Fest at the end of August on the 28th. We pray for Reverend Paul Henderson that you would help him in preparation for that. And all of us as well as we prepare to celebrate the Lord's Supper, uh, the sacrament that you have given to us to strengthen us in our faith. Uh, Bless everything and coming together for that. And we commit that into your hands as well as our fellowship meal today, that you would bless our time of fellowshipping together as fellow believers, strengthening us 
uh, with one another's testimony and encouragement. We do pray for our nation and the upcoming elections in November, and then we think of November of 24. We pray that you would have mercy upon us and that you would enable us to have a swing back, as it were, to the right, to conservatism, to an overthrowing or, or stopping of the radical agenda of the left, and that you would govern or use those who are in places of government to govern righteously and not according to wickedness, that you would restrain them in their sin, and that we would maintain then our constitutional liberties that we have, uh, especially the freedom of religion that we enjoy in this country so we could meet this morning without fear of persecution. We pray that that freedom will continue. But if, if that is not going to happen, we pray you will prepare us for what may be next. Give us strength in our souls, in our convictions, that we would be faithful uh, to the truth, even unto death, if so called upon to do so. We do also pray for true reformation and revival in this country, that the gospel would go forth, that you would gather in your elect, and um, and we thank you for all the many ministries that you've raised up and true churches for that end, and pray that your blessing will be upon that uh, in this day. And we do also continue to pray your blessing to be upon the people of Ukraine, that this this war would cease, and also that you would have mercy upon uh, the people of Taiwan in their being harassed by China, especially the Communist Party of China, who seeks to dominate the world. We pray that you would thwart uh, anything in the China Sea in terms of warfare between us and them, that they would stand down from their provocative military exercises, and that you would have mercy upon the people of Taiwan, that they would continue to be free as well. So we commit the rest of this service now, Lord, into your hands. Guide and direct us. Help us to sing uh, to your praise, to be truly thankful for what you've done for us in Christ Jesus. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen. Please rise now for the reading of God's word and turn in your Bibles to Psalm 73 once again and reading the first 20 verses. Give all your attention now to the reading of God's holy word, the revealed truth. Truly, God is good to Israel, to such as are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the boastful when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no pangs in their death, but their strength is firm. They are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like other men. Therefore pride serves as their necklace. Violence covers them like a garment. Their eyes bulge with abundance. They have more than heart could wish. They scoff and speak wickedly concerning oppression. They speak loftily. They've set their mouth against the heavens, and their tongue walks through the earth. Therefore his people return here, and waters of a full cup are drained by them. And they say, How does God know? And is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the ungodly, who are always at ease. They increase in riches. Surely I have cleansed my heart in vain, and washed my hands in innocence. For all day long I have been plagued, and chastened every morning." If I had if I had said, I will speak thus, behold, I would have been untrue to the generation of your children. When I thought how to understand this, 
It was too painful for me until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their end. Surely you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. Oh, how they are brought to desolation as in a moment. They are utterly consumed with terrors. As a dream when one awakes, so, Lord, when you awake, you shall despise their image. And now turn in your Bibles to James chapter 5, reading the first six verses. Again, hear the word of our God. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches are corrupted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver are corroded and their corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have heaped up treasures in the last days. Indeed, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, cry out. And the cries of the reapers have reached the ears of the Lord of the Sabbath. You have lived on the earth in pleasure and luxury. You have fattened your hearts as in a day of slaughter. You have condemned, you have murdered the just. He does not resist you. This ends the reading of God's word, and let us remember that all flesh is like grass, and all of its glory is like the flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord abides forever. And all of God's people said, Amen. Please be seated. Let us go to our God once again in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, again, we thank you that we can come before you and look into your word again at this Psalm 73 that we've been looking at over the past few weeks. And we pray that you would guide and direct us by your Holy Spirit, that you would illuminate our minds, giving us eyes to see and ears to hear wonderful things out of your word, so as to feed us and strengthen us in the faith, so that we might grow in it and that we might bear that fruit that will bring you glory. And may all of this be to your glory's sake this day, Lord. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So over these past three weeks, we have been considering Psalm 73, the testimony of a believer, Asaph, who nearly stumbled and slipped into apostasy because of a temptation common to all believers. That temptation is to doubt God's goodness to us when we observe the prosperous, easy lives of the wicked and when at the same time we are suffering the plagues and chastening of God. The Prosperous, Wicked, and Plagued Saints, the name of the book by David Engelsma, which I am using for this series, helps us to understand the solution to this perplexing situation that we may find ourselves in. Now, we saw last week the importance of acknowledging of both situations, the prosperity of the wicked and the chastening of the saints. They come from our sovereign God, ordained from all eternity. Engelsma addresses the erroneous theory of common grace developed by Abraham Kuyper and made the official doctrine of the Christian Reformed Church, the CRC, back in 1924. This theory has permeated the Reformed world and is widely accepted, but usually because it's not fully understood. The CRC's first point in their official church doctrine is that God shows favor, grace, love toward all human beings 
elect and reprobate. And they would say that, therefore, the prosperity of the wicked comes to them because God favors them. Now, truly, God is good and only gives good gifts to men. He is the overflowing fountain of all good. But the question is, is, does God give these good gifts to the wicked because he favors them? Or is it something else? At the end of last week's exhortation, I suggested that the Psalms answers to that question is different from the theory of common grace. The solution is found when Asaph is in the sanctuary of God and hears God's word. It also answers the question regarding the saint's plagues and chastening. Does he show disfavor or curse upon his elect? We saw in verse 17, though, that the solution to this and we shall elaborate on that today, is by considering the end of the wicked and the end of the saints, which we shall consider in a few weeks. I want to read briefly again our text for today, which is verses 18 through 20. It says, Surely you have set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. Oh, how they are brought to desolation in a moment. They are utterly consumed with terrors. As a dream when one awakes, so, Lord, when you awake, you shall despise their image. In the sanctuary of God, where God makes known the truth, about the prosperous life of the wicked and the troublous life of his Israel, his chosen, the God-fearing man or woman is delivered from this great temptation occasioned by these two contrasting lives. God delivers the struggling saint by revealing the end of the prosperous wicked. When the end of the wicked is, we learn what it is, we learn in verses 18 and 19. These verses warn of the end of all the wicked, the wicked within the visible church, as well as the wicked in the openly ungodly world. By the end of the wicked, verse 17 has in their view their final destiny, their eternal state. They reach this end when their earthly life ends in physical death. At the instant of physical death begins their life for eternity. This life is not all there is for the wicked and also not for the righteous. There's also an end for them, which is everlasting as well. So the end of the wicked is their utter destruction. As we see in verse 18 here, a number of words are used. Destruction, desolation, consumed or being consumed, consumption if you will, perishing, these words all demonstrate a terrible end for the wicked. The prosperous earthly life of the wicked and their arrogance whereby they exalt themselves against God and speak against God and oppress his children, this demonstrates, again, their wickedness in this life, but from the outside, if you will, it looks like everything is going well for them. So how how do we reconcile this? When they are constantly having it great, in a sense, but then at the end, we see their 
we see what their eternity is all about by these words, desolation, consumption, destruction. Again, these are powerful words that the Bible uses. And of course, we know that when a, when an unbeliever dies, his body goes into the grave, but his soul goes into hell. Where he awaits, though, the resurrection of his body, as Jesus said, you know, it's not just his people that will be resurrected at the end. The unbelieving, unregenerate reprobate will be resurrected at the end as well because they will be punished in their bodies as they sinned in their bodies in this life. But their destruction begins with their soul going into hell, their body into the grave, awaiting that day of resurrection, and then they will be cast into their eternal destruction of body and soul. And the one who inflicts this destruction is God. He says in verse 18, Surely you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction as in a moment. The wicked are desolated, caused to perish, and consumed by God. He is the destroyer of the wicked. This word uh, also has with it terrors. He said they are consumed with terrors. Terrors consume the wicked. The terrors of all terrors, the most fearsome, is that the infinite wrath of the righteous God avenging his offended holiness is upon them forever. Since God is the destroyer of the wicked, the destruction itself is the suffering of God's fiery wrath. The end of the wicked is damnation. Damned sinners experience destruction as all the pain of being wasted, caused to perish, and consumed by God, who the book of Hebrews says is a consuming fire. Now these, exper- these they experience destruction, uh, but also because they are bound with fears uh, at the absolute absence of God in his goodness, but equally the awful nearness of God in his hatred. I believe it was Jonathan Edwards that said that that which makes heaven heavenly is the presence of God in his grace, but that which makes hell hell is the presence of God in his wrath. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God, as Hebrews 10.31 says. So let us consider their destruction for a moment. First, it is an everlasting destruction. The destruction of the wicked is not their annihilation, meaning that they simply cease to exist, that they just pop into nothingness. Now, I'm sure many of them would be okay with that. That would be fine if they could live prosperous, easy lives, thumbing their noses at God and oppressing his people, die, and then just disappear. What would they have to complain about, right? They had it great here, and then they just disappeared. But of course, that is not what the Bible teaches happens at death. Even though there are people, even people in the Christian 
community that try to promote such a thing, that maybe after a period of so much suffering, then they just disappear into nothingness. The Bible doesn't teach that at all. Our ever, only everlasting misery accounts for the dreadfulness of the end of the wicked. The everlasting torment and hell in hell of body and soul forever. And Jesus states this. And Jesus, by the way, spoke more about hell in the New Testament than any other New Testament writer. It says, it's better for you to enter into life maimed than having two hands to go into hell, into the fire that never shall be quenched, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. That's what Jesus said about that. It is everlasting destruction. It is also, secondly, a sudden destruction. The terrible, terrifying destruction happens to them in verse 19, it says, as in a moment. Literally, the vivid Hebrew word means in a wink or a blink of an eye. Regardless of if an old reprobate dies in their late 90s, or if they die a violent death in their early 20s, all are plunged suddenly from their prosperous earthly life into hell in the blink of an eye. Christ also expresses this abruptness when he tells the parable in Luke 16 of the rich man and Lazarus. He says the rich man also died and was buried, and in hell he lifted up his eyes. So he died and then found himself in hell. Of course, we would also reject the idea put forth by Rome of some place called purgatory, where someone can go for a while, suffer for a while, and maybe your relatives can get you out of there earlier, and then you maybe go to heaven. No, the Bible teaches there are two locations post-death, heaven or hell. That's it. Not annihilation, not purgatory, but heaven or hell. There's sudden destruction. There end, this end of the wicked hangs over the prosperous earthly life of every wicked man and woman, and that like the sword of Damocles. Now, if you've ever heard of this, um, this story in Greek lore of the sword of Damocles, which was, and I might get some of the details wrong, but basically, my understanding is a, a young man really envied the life of the king and wanted that life. And the king said, oh, really? Okay, come on in. And there's a big feast going on, enjoying all this luxury. And yet the man is seated in a chair and above his head, suspended by a horsehair, is a large, heavy, sharp sword, which could at any moment that hair could snap and that sword plunge down, splitting the man in half. And the king, of course, is trying to demonstrate to this young man that you might think this is all it is, is just having all this fun and feasting and so on. But the weight upon him as the king, of course, is like that having that uh, suspended sword above his head all the time. Well, that's just like the prosperous wicked living that prosperous life and thumbing their noses at God, they really are living with that sword of Damocles, if you will, 
suspended over their head all the time. This verse 18, by the way, in Psalm 73, is the verse that Jonathan Edwards used, that um, famous Reformed pastor of the 18th century, whose sermon, pretty well known to most people, it's called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. That's the name of the sermon based on Psalm 73, verse 18. Well, surely you set them in slippery places. And he preached that sermon in New England in the 18th century, and that was really a pivotal sermon that actually began what they called the First Great Awakening, where God gathered in many of his elect who were outside of his fold through that sermon and then through his preaching and through uh, the next number of years. But here's a couple of statements that Edwards makes, again, based on this Psalm 73, verse 18. And he's talking to people who may be in an unregenerate state, to natural men. He says, the natural men are held in the hand of God over the pit of hell. They deserve the fiery pit and are already sentenced to it. And God is dreadfully provoked. His anger is as great towards them as it is actually towards those who are already suffering the wrath of God in hell. The devil is waiting for them. Hell is gaping for them. The flames gather and flash about them and would lay hold on them and swallow them up. All that preserves them every moment is the mere arbitrary will and uncovenanted, unobliged forbearance of an angry God. The God that holds you over the pit of hell much as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect over the fire abhors you and is dreadfully provoked. You have offended him infinitely more than ever a stubborn rebel did his prince. And yet it is nothing but his hand that holds you from falling into the fire every moment. Yet there is nothing else that is to be given as a reason why you do not, at this very moment, don't drop into hell. Consider the fearful danger you are in. It is a great furnace of wrath, a wide and bottomless pit, full of the fire of wrath that you are held over in the hand of God, whose wrath is provoked and incensed against you, as it is in those damned in hell. And you hang by a slender thread with the flames of divine wrath flashing about it. Nothing to keep off the flames of wrath, nothing of your own, nothing that you could ever have done, nothing that you can do to induce God to spare you one moment. It was in that preaching that people became very disturbed. It is a very disturbing doctrine, the doctrine of hell, eternity in hell. And at the preaching of that, people, it is reported, were clutching onto pillars in the building in which he was preaching for fear of falling into that gaping hell, which they deserved because of their sin and their unrepentance and God's wrath against their sin. And this all in a blink of an eye. And that, of course, renders this prosperous life of the wicked very precarious and doomed and unenviable. It's not something to envy or look at and covet. The certain, the end is certain for all the wicked and God makes known in his sanctuary of this truth that all who live and die in wickedness will perish in the end and quickly be sent to their eternal destiny. 
How appalling is the end of the wicked. Horror of horrors that they are brought into desolation in the blink of an eye. So if it is true that their brief, prosperous, earthly life is a blessing in God's common grace, which I deny that it is, so dreadful is the end of the wicked that anyone with good sense would ignore their brief earthly blessing and concentrate on their everlasting curse. Psalm 92, 7 says, When the wicked spring up like grass, and when all the workers of iniquity flourish, it is that they may be destroyed forever. Their earthly prosperity is no blessing. Their earthly prosperity is related to their dreadful destruction. Their prosperity is the slippery places that God has placed them on and sends them sliding smoothly and swiftly through life onto the end of their destruction. This connection between the dreadful end of the wicked and their prosperous earthly life is what Psalm 73 is teaching us. So understanding that end in connection with their prosperous life, Asaph was delivered from his thinking that almost got him into spiritual desolation himself. It woke him up to not succumb to this temptation that God is not good to Israel, his people, but rather to the wicked in this life. Knowledge of the end of the wicked, their destruction, desolation, perishing, being consumed by terrors, delivered Asaph from this temptation by seeing what their end was. And it is the goal of their prosperous life where it takes them. The prosperous life of the reprobate has its natural, inevitable end in eternal destruction. Just like a leisurely boat ride down the Niagara River would end in devastating destruction if you didn't get off before the falls, right? This is also the folly of this notion of common grace that God is favoring the wicked with all of these so-called good things. They are good, but he's giving them to him because he favors them and he really wants to save them, but he can't. That's the idea of the theory of common grace, which again is has permeated the Reformed world because, in my opinion, because of a gross misunderstanding of what Kuiper and the, and the Christian Reformed Church really taught. They only fix on one little point of it, that, that God causes the sun to rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. That is all they think common grace is, and that's it. But that's, that's only the tip of the proverbial iceberg, much, much more developed by Kuiper and the Christian Reformed Church, the CRC, which doctrine ultimately does not Christianize the world, but actually worldize the church. And that's why it needs to be addressed and uh, stood against. So if this is the end of the wicked, should we envy them? Should we envy their prosperous lives, their good health, 
their great family relationships and so on. No. Because we know this is God's means of bringing them to their deserved end that he has ordained from all eternity. The prosperity of the wicked, their trouble-free lives, having more than their heart could wish for, is again to them slippery places by which they go down swiftly and surely to eternal damnation. In the sanctuary, the psalmist saw this, and he then changed his mind about what he was thinking about that. It is the nature of ease, comfort, pleasures, and riches to dull our spiritual senses. And so those of us who are true believers need to be watchful that we're not lulled into that kind of envy because we see what's going on around us and we're not thinking about the end of the wicked. If there was any hope at all for the wicked, it would be that their earthly miseries or that earthly miseries, poverty, sickness, family troubles, and so on, would awaken them to the realities of a just God, his impending judgment, and the brevity of this life, and a coming eternity, that it would wake them up. But prosperity makes those who are foolish to begin with, drunken as it were. They are stupefied with the enjoyment of early earthly life apart from God. Augustine wrote about this. He said, there is no greater calamity than the happiness and prosperity of the ungodly. It is a strong wine which makes them drunk in their unrighteousness and they incur thereby a huge amount and heavy load of God's wrath. If you contrast that with the estimation of the prosperity of the wicked from their point of view, you know, they think, again, it's, they'll say, I'm blessed. I have all this, it's wonderful, and so on. And they wear pride as with uh, a necklace, as Asaph said earlier in this psalm. And they delight in that, and they encourage any and all to follow them in their path, because look at look at their lives. Look at how wonderful they are. But who could envy, as a blessing, someone sliding precipitously into hell? The sliding of the wicked into destruction by their prosperity, again, is God's doing. God gives prosperity to the reprobate wicked with the purpose that their prosperity ruins them eternally. By their prosperity, God hardens them in their wickedness, their proud godlessness, so that they perish. You set them in slippery places. You cast them down into destruction. And it begins that that uh, verse with the word surely, surely or certainly. This is not if or possibly, but this is the sure determination of God's doctrine of reprobation, which the Bible teaches, but which many people reject because it's so unsettling. And I mean, and it, it is unsettling. There's no doubt. Uh, and it should put the fear of God in our hearts. So this purpose of God in putting them on slippery places again is to bring them to that which he has purposed for them all along. 
And again, that is the doctrine of election. Election and reprobation come under the umbrella doctrine of what we call predestination. This is what we believe the Bible teaches. The Reformed community typically has a very strong understanding of this truth that the Bible teaches. Many people in the wider, broader Protestant and evangelical world completely deny both election and reprobation because they have succumbed to uh, the Arminian view of things that God loves everybody, wants everybody to say, but it's all dependent on you. You got to make that choice. You got to exercise your free will. And then, and then, you know, you do that and you're, you're in, you know, though you could be out tonight if you, uh, disbelieve. But we, of course, reject all of that. And our canons of Dort, which we went through last year, gives all of that basis of rejection of that false doctrine, heretical doctrine, but which is the most pervasive doctrine out there in the broader Protestant world. So again, who can envy the prosperity of the wicked? This should help change your mind about that when you catch glimpses of that out in the world or on television or in the movies or in the newspaper and social media and so on. You should really ask yourself, why am I envying this person for all that they have? Or why am I coveting what they have when if they are a reprobate, if they are not elect, all of this is putting them on a slippery slope into destruction. So how can I envy what they have? Lord, thank you for what I have. Thank you for what you've prospered me with and blessed me with and let me hold it loosely, you know. But let me never envy the prosperous wicked uh, and think, well, they got it better than me and maybe you're not as good to me as you are to them. That's nonsense. That's not what the Bible teaches nor what we should be confessing. In this last verse, verse 20, as a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you awake, you shall despise their image. See, again, misunderstanding the attitude of God toward the prosperous ungodly was Asaph's spiritual struggle and could be ours. He again supposed that if that prosperity was God's blessing, then his chastening and plagues must be God's curse upon him. Again, that is a misunderstanding of the truth. And we looked at that a little bit last week about the chastening and plaguing of the righteous is for their eternal good. God is sanctifying us. He is conforming us to the image of Christ. And that requires chastening. So we should look at all of the chastening in our lives as God's blessing upon us. And that's hard to do because we get so fixed, fixated on the, the pain or the chastening itself, the situation. We get caught up in that and then grumble and complain about it and, and so on rather than looking at the end. Looking at the big picture. So the attitude of God toward the prosperous ungodly is implied again by their end. Their end is destruction. To this end, God has ordained them in his eternal decree. This end he caused them to reach by loading it with riches and ease in his providential government of their earthly lives. He is the one who set them in the slippery places and cast them down to destruction. The end reveals what God's attitude was toward them all along. 
Again, against the notion of, of Kuiper's theory of common grace, that God loves them and wants to bless them and favors them and show them grace and mercy. And that's why he's giving that to them. That's wrong. That's not what the Bible teaches. God is angry with the wicked every day, it says in Psalms. So many scripture verses that teach against what Kuiper taught, and yet how many people in the Reformed world take it hook, line, and sinker and never question it, and in fact are put out of churches because they deny it. It's unbelievable. So this attitude where it says here that as in a dream when one awakes, it's using this metaphorical figurative language as if God is sleeping. As if God is sleeping and the wicked are just prospering while he's sleeping. And again, this is just for metaphorical figurative effect, if you will. And then he wakes up. He snaps out of a dream. You ever do that when you're sleeping, you're dreaming, and then you wake up out of that dream? Oh, I'm awake. And then what happens to that dream? You maybe could remember it for just a second or two, and then it dissipates. It's like, what was I dreaming just now? <laughs> I don't remember. That's what Asaph is saying. It's like, it's like God is, is asleep and these, these wicked are prospering kind of without his knowing it. And then he wakes. He wakes up. But then his attitude towards them is that he despises their image like that faint echo of that memory of that dream that we had just a second ago. It's nothing now. And again, this is figurative language. Truly, God does not sleep or slumber, right? The Bible says that um, in the Psalms. You know, we know that. God is omniscient. Nothing gets by him. Nothing fools him. And he's he never takes a break, you know, like Elijah uh, said to the prophets of Baal. Maybe... Maybe Baal is off taking a break. Maybe he's taking a nap. He's in the bathroom or something. You know, no. God is not such a finite idol. God is omniscient, all-knowing. So again, you have to keep in mind, this is figurative speech, metaphorical language, just showing this abruptness, as it were, or what will happen to them uh, in terms of their memory is just like this distant dream memory that I had. Now I can't even remember what it was. That's what, that's what, um, that he despises their image and that he despises that, um, fleeting memory, that image of them. Um, so the life of the prosperous and godly is a mere image. It is without substance. It is empty and worthless, as empty and worthless as a faint memory of a dream. There's nothing to it. Calvin says that all which we gaze at in this world is nothing else than pure vanity itself. Read the book of Ecclesiastes. All the things of this life are breath. Vanity, vanity, breath. Nothing in and of themselves, nothing to worship or depend on in terms of idolatry. The prosperous earthly life of the wicked is a mere image because it is human life lived without God and his blessing and because it ends in the destruction for all, for the rest of eternity, for all eternity. And that in a very short and quick time. So as Christian believers, we must believe 
that God is good to Israel, to his people, even in the midst of our chastening and our being plagued in this life. And we must also be aware that the prosperous, easy lives of the wicked is not something for us to envy and want to emulate or follow. And this, again, is walking by faith and not by sight. If you only go by your senses, what you're going to see out there will lead you down that path that Asaph was going, to stumbling and falling into spiritual despair. We must walk by faith and regard all of these things by faith and not by sight. And we know that, not by our senses, not empirically, not by just our reasoning, rationality, but we know that by divine revelation, what the end of the wicked is, by faith and not by sight. And therefore, we must not envy them and their prosperous lives. And as I read earlier in James 5, they are being fattened for the slaughter, as an ox is fattened for the slaughter before they are you know, taken to the slaughterhouse. They're not put on uh, an extreme diet to make them really thin and lean, right? You don't want that. You want them as big and as fat as you can possibly get them because that's the kind of meat people want. But think of that as being what's happening to the prosperous wicked. Fattened for slaughter. And we must realize again that God is good to us and does bless us with that chastening and plaguing that we have for our eternal glory. And next week we shall begin to look at again Asaph's coming to this self-examination, coming to this conclusion of how wrong he was to be thinking that way earlier in the psalm. And remember, this psalm has been breathed out for us by God for our instruction. Amen? Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this Psalm 73 that you've breathed out by your Holy Spirit through the human author of Asaph, the Levite. And we thank you for his testimony. We thank you for the truth that you preserved him in the midst of his his, uh, wavering and, and waffling over the truth and almost slipping and sliding himself into destruction. But you preserved him and kept him in the faith. And he he realized that once he was in the sanctuary, once he was where the word of God was proclaimed, he realized the end of the prosperous wicked was not a good thing. And their, their prosperity was not a good thing in the sense of a blessing from you by your favor, but rather that which put them on slippery places to send them into their deserved eternal destruction because of their sins against your infinite majesty and holiness. Help us to understand that's what we deserve in ourselves apart from Christ. We deserve that eternity as well. But we're only saved because of what Jesus Christ has done for us in our place by his life and death. And that is what we depend on. That is what we trust in for all eternity. In Christ's name we pray, amen.